You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. In the study of God's messages to women, I wish you to approach his book as though, like a pagan, you had never seen it before and knew nothing about it. Will you endeavor to cultivate this spirit of fresh inquiry? When we have heard over and over again with unquestioning credulity an explanation of a thing, even though the explanation be grotesque, it comes back to us with all the force of natural fact. The mention of the thing recalls to the imagination that explanation, and no other seems right. If there be an error in the explanation, we arrive at a point where we can detect it only by a real effort. The false view comes to mind first and hinders acceptance of the true. Those are the words of Catherine Bushnell, physician, missionary, anti-trafficking advocate, and groundbreaking contributor to feminist biblical hermeneutics. If Bushnell's is an unfamiliar name to you, you're not alone. Kristen Dumay's 2015 book, A New Gospel for Women, Catherine Bushnell and the Challenge of Christian Feminism, works to highlight the efforts of this heroine of the faith to eradicate the oft-explained grotesque false view that patriarchal biblical interpretation is divinely inspired. Dr. Dumay, welcome to Christian Humanist Profiles, uh, and thanks for being here today. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. So uh, I alluded in my introduction to the fact that I feel like Catherine Bushnell is not terribly well-known. I was introduced to your work and Bushnell as a historical Christian feminist figure, more specifically, when our mutual friend and my fellow Christian Humanist Radio Network member, Chris Gertz, sent me uh, one of your anxious bench pieces about Bushnell. Uh, In the piece, you talk about the recent controversial decision not to give Tim Keller the Kuiper Prize, and you connect that to Bushnell's project to determine whether certain interpretations of Christianity exist to prop up the oppression of women. So, even though I've heard of the Women's Christian Temperance Union, which Bushnell was involved with, even though I'm familiar with other feminist biblical uh, interpreters that were working in the same time, I haven't heard of her. How did you discover Bushnell's work, and why was it important for you to write this book? So I first stumbled across Bushnell back when I was a PhD student searching for a dissertation topic. And you know how that can go? You're uh, just, you know, trying to to find something new, find something to to explore. And I was really looking at the period of the late 19th and early 20th century at Protestant women. I felt like there were so many untold stories in that era. I had so many questions about what women were doing and particularly the relationship of Christianity and feminism. It seemed like such a a critical transitional period, a time uh, kind of bridging a time when Christianity and feminism were in many ways compatible into the 20th century when they become more became more and more in tension. And so I'd been digging around for um, for people to help me explore these stories, historical figures, for a while. And it was actually just following a footnote trail that led me to Bushnell. A footnote after a footnote after a footnote, and I stumbled across her book, God's Word to Women. 
And when I ordered the book and I started reading it, I was blown away. And in fact, I still remember I was in this little grad school apartment, just paging through this book thinking, is this for real? And how could I have never heard this before? And so I, I just knew I needed to to explore that question. How could she have been forgotten for so long? And that really um, uh, became one of the driving questions for the book. Um, but it was also kind of a burden because as I was working on first the dissertation and then the book, I was always plagued by this question of, does she really matter? If she had been forgotten for so long, you know, um, do we need to recover her? And and so um, so I kind of carried that burden with me as I as I researched. What I discovered is that uh, in some ways I think she was too Christian um, for feminists, and she broke ranks with feminists in the 20th century, particularly around issues of sexuality. But she was also very radical, especially in the more conservative Protestant circles, where she shared a lot in common um, in terms of her theology. I love that you uh, talk about that that sort of liminal position. Um, I, I know we'll get more uh, get into that more later, but first you mentioned um, God's Word to Women, which is the text that I quoted in my little intro. Um, I thought that your description of that text in the book was really interesting and gets to her kind of um, liminal social position. Uh, it certainly, that text is not the first feminist interpretation of the Bible. There are earlier and more famous ones. Uh, mm -hmm. But you talk about it as, as being distinctive because it contains, and I'm quoting now, uh, a biblical theology of liberation for women that is compatible with a conserv conservative hermeneutic. Can you unpack that a little bit for our listeners? What does that mean and how does it make God's word to women uh, a different kind of uh, feminist interpretation of the Bible? Sure. In fact, my working title of this book was for a long time, The Forgotten Woman's Bible. And, uh, but then. Oh, cool. Like my editor. Yeah. A, a reference editor, to uh, Stanton. Stanton. Exactly. But my editor worried that people had actually forgotten the existence of the woman's Bible as well. And so we didn't end up going with that. But that, that was really one of my motivating questions. Um, and, and Bushnell's book is very different from Stanton's Woman's Bible. Um, Stanton's Woman's Bible came out in the last years of the 19th century. And um, it, she actually wrote it with a committee of other women. And she was not trained in biblical languages or, or in theology. And so what she and her, her co-workers did was simply um, rewrite passages of the Bible that they found um, puzzling or uh, that they didn't like so much, reinterpreted. They they played kind of fast and loose with biblical authority, and it was really a creative exercise on their part. They literally cut and paste, right? They, yes. they sort of uh, they Jeff out. Jefferson Bible it and, and yeah. uh, start their commentary from there. Exactly. And, you know, just rewrite entire chunks of it. And so um, 
it what what happened then is that really produced a kind of backlash and it gave feminist theology christian feminism a kind of um black eye for a long time and what you see happening in the in the ensuing years is women's rights activists just steering away from direct engagement with Christian theology. It had caused such a backlash, um, the, the, the women's Bible, that they kind of turned away and, and abandoned this more rigorous engagement with Christian theology. And so the woman's Bible itself, although it was resurrected in the 1970s um, by um, um, what we often call second wave feminists, it really disappeared for a long time. In fact, um, people in Bushnell's circles, I have uh, letters that they were writing where they they would say, you know, has anybody heard of this woman's Bible? And does anybody know where we could we could get it? So it really it really had disappeared. And in some cases, uh, it may have done more harm than good because it, it really associated heresy with uh, feminist theology. Bushnell takes a very different approach. She is quite conservative in terms of her her hermeneutic. She believes that every word of the Bible is authoritative, inspired by God, and uh, you should not tinker with it. But she was actually trained in biblical languages, so she applied that to the original languages, or in her case, to Hebrew and Greek, and she not only reinterpreted the scriptures, but in many passages, she went to the Hebrew, she went to the Greek, and she found that there were different ways, equally legitimate, or in many cases, more legitimate ways to translate those scriptures. And that really serves as a foundation for her theology, uh, this new translation of the scriptures. And for that reason, it's in many ways compatible with you know, Orthodox Christianity and um, and she was able to come up with radical reinterpretations, in some cases retranslations of the scriptures through this method. It really is radical. I, um, in preparing for this interview, I read not the whole thing, but a, a number of sections, and particularly the the parts where she talks about. Um, words being used Hebrew words being used differently if they're if they're referring to men or women Um, like usually the Hebrew word means this all the times it refers to men but this one time it refers to something feminine it's translated completely different and hmm, I wonder why that is it's just it's so compelling her research absolutely so you know virtue um, the the Hebrew word chayel is a great example of that and you know, it was interpreted as as virtue for women and as a strength for men, and power. And um, you know, other words too were, were were translated as modesty, but only when they described female um, females in the in the scriptures. And she has so many examples of these that it, she makes a very compelling case when you when you uh, read her her theology. You know, at first you kind of approach it as a skeptic, but she certainly certainly makes a, a, a strong case in terms of the need to, um, to to have women have a hand in translating the scriptures. I will say, though, to connect um, to what we started off talking about in terms of why she isn't better recognized today, I think that she does carry a little bit of the blame for that in, in that she was not the clearest writer. 
And so if you go through her her book, God's Word to Women, it's it, it, it really needed a, a good editor. And she wrote it as initially as a series of correspondence courses and and then she kind of kept adding to it. And so it lacks a really clear structure. And you really have to dig in and invest some time to to stay with her. And um, so one of the things that I tried to do in my book was because I thought it was such an important theology. I, I did devote a couple of chapters to giving the highlights, the most important insights, I think, that she brought to the table in terms of her feminist theology. So I'm, I'm really glad that you wrote those chapters and did that work because it was incredibly illuminating to me having read Stanton and uh, and other uh, feminist biblical interpretations to see how different, as you say, uh, the Bushnell is and how much work she clearly put into uh, the translation and uh, and the the depth of the theology behind it, because I think, um, and probably a, a lot of Christian women um, can relate to this. There's this the association of um, Bible studies still for women that you just kind of slap a flower on the front, right? And and yeah. and there's not really a lot of theological uh, meat there and so to to know that there was someone um this far back in history who was sort of dealing with the same uh baggage and pushing against it was uh was incredibly interesting and encouraging to me exactly yeah that that she was she was so far ahead of of us in some ways or at least right right alongside um asking the very same questions that we're asking today. It's it's really quite remarkable. I find too when I introduce her work to different Christian audiences, especially more conservative Christians, they're very interested in the fact that she was writing as early as she was, because I think that there's a popular misconception that any sort of Christian feminism or feminist theology is a product of kind of 1970s second wave feminism. There's this idea that it's it's a product of a kind of secular movement that that infiltrates the church. That's not even accurate in terms of 1970s Christian feminism, but but there no, is a strong not. perception, right? Um, and so so when they hear uh, that Bushnell started this work in the 19th century, I think that they're they're ready to listen in in a new way, and they're intrigued that women had been asking these questions and really writing feminist theologies for a very long time. And I think that opens them up to to consider some of her ideas. Uh, that's a, a fantastic segue to another question I wanted to ask. Uh, I'm one of the founders of the Christian Feminist Podcast, also on the Christian Humanist Network. And one of the things that I love most about your book is what a responsible piece of historical writing it is. Uh, I know that's not the sexiest <laughs> adjective ever. Uh, but I'll take it. I'll take it. Uh, 
but it is, it's very responsible. And I use that word because uh, it doesn't let me, as a 21st century Christian feminist, get too comfortable. It uh, pushes against my sort of presentist notions of Mm -hmm. what gender progress are. Uh, portrays Bushnell as being ahead of her time, as we've kind of already mentioned, but also very much of her time. Mm -hmm. Um, At one point, you say she pushes against the tendency of, quote, those identifying as Christian feminists to pluck examples of biblical feminism from the past in order to apply those teachings to contemporary situations. Um, I really appreciated that note of caution um, against presentism because I think uh, because um, we as Christian feminists can uh, can be so starved for those examples mm-hmm. and can be told so often that, you know, that's an oxymoron and those two things can't exist together, mm-hmm. um, that it, it can be really easy to fall into that presentist trap. So... Uh, why did you think it was necessary to include that caution? Do you think you have that tendency too, or is it just me? <laughs> yeah, I um, I had seen that in in many of the books that had been written on kind of nineteenth century evangelical feminism, Christian feminism. That the point they were making was so important, as you recognize, simply proving that feminism and Christianity are not incompatible, <laughs> that they can coexist, they can they um, can work in tandem, that you can have a Christian feminism. Just that is, in many circles still today, a radical concept, and it's it's very oh, legitimate. Oh, I know. We, uh, <laughs> we get some hate mail over at the Christian oh. Feminist Podcast. Oh, I'm sure you do. So, so, so I don't want to detract from that project. It's very important. But as a historian, it's also important to recognize that neither Christianity nor feminism is a static construct. Um, American feminism changes dramatically over the decades, over the centuries, what it entails. And American Protestantism or American Christianity also changes dramatically, especially for both during the time in which Bushnell lived. And what I came to understand was that if you don't follow that history and follow that development and and see Christianity and feminism and Christian feminism as um, very dynamic um, movements, then you aren't going to be able to ultimately answer the questions I think we really want to answer, which is what happened, and to understand why so many people perceive them to be incompatible today. And that's the kind of hard historical work that I wanted to do. Now, do I have the tendency to um, to want to be kind of presentist? I, I did when I was working on Bushnell, and I didn't realize it. Until I got to the chapter of her life uh, in the 1920s and 1930s where she takes on Margaret Sanger and uh, around the issue of birth control. Yeah, I wanted to talk about that. (laughs) Let's talk about that. Yeah. So at that point, I thought, oh, come on. No, 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 no. You know, you're supposed to – she said so many amazing things. She was such a, a brave, powerful feminist voice. And here she kind of betrays 20th century feminism. 
And I found myself wanting to push back against that. I found myself disappointed because <laughs> I, I, and that's when I realized that I had wanted to, to make her into something, to do something with her rather than treat her on her own terms. And as soon as I realized that, it just opened up so many more important questions. Why? <laughs> why, given everything I knew about her, why would she come out against birth control? And uh, what I what I came to understand is, first of all, she was still working in the kind of older model of um, seeing sexual restraint as the um, the best path for women's empowerment. Not just female sexual restraint, very importantly, uh, male sexual restraint, but also sexual restraint more generally. And and this was a pragmatic choice as much as it was a religious choice. I think it was actually more pragmatic than it was religious uh, in that at that time, given women's disempowerment in patriarchal marriages, um, their disadvantages in terms of the labor market, in terms of, of rights generally, um, they uh, sexual activity was dangerous for women. It could lead to pregnancy. Um, they did not have um, power to... Um, um, retain custody of their children in the case of divorce. Um, uh, sexually transmitted diseases ran rampant. And so sexual activity was actually um, fraught for, for women at that time, um, particularly because of their um, uh, lack of social and economic and political power. And Bushnell was still working out of that framework. Now, by the 1920s, a new generation of American feminists had begun to embrace liberation, sexual liberation. Um, the whole idea um, for, for decades uh, of trying to have men restrain themselves sexually um, never really took hold that well. And so they thought, well, to bring an equal playing field. Uh, let's liberate women's sexuality as well. And that really is the direction that mainstream American feminism um, has taken uh, for the most part. What Bushnell saw, however, was that within the power structures that continued within patriarchy, sexual liberation was not necessarily liberating for women. And many feminists themselves came to realize that um, a decade or two later, and even today, I think uh, we continue to to bump up against this this question of is is sexual liberation liberating to women, particularly when the um, larger social structures are still in many ways quite oppressive to women. And so today you'll have things like the hookup culture and, and uh, you know, scholars looking at, at what this means for women or women themselves asking, what does this mean? Is this liberating? And if it's, if it still is, is taking place in a patriarchal system, then it, it it's not necessarily liberating for women. Yeah, I, I think we're definitely still asking those questions and and feeling those divisions. Um, I was I was thinking about that when I was reading chapter seven of your book, where you talk about um, 
that split between the sort of fight between Bushnell and Sanger over birth control and some other polarizing uh, issues in feminism. And I, uh, something that popped into my head, if I can maybe uh, do that sort of presentist plucking thing yeah. that you warn <laughs> against a little bit, um, is the the discussions around the recent women's march and the fact that a number of pro-life feminist groups were banned from officially participating uh, and you have public feminists like uh, people like Roxanne Gay and Jessica Valenti saying um, if you're pro-life you're not a feminist like you're just mm-hmm. not um, mm-hmm. do you think is is there a way past these kinds of divisions for Christian feminists is there a different issue we can um, kind of all sit at the table on with mainstream mm-hmm. feminists, or is is this a gulf we can't cross? What do you think? That's a really tough question. Uh, if there is an issue that people can come together around, it's probably not abortion right now. Um, probably not. <laughs> and uh, in in Christian feminists within Christian feminism, I think there's a wide range of views um, with regard to. Uh, abortion as well, and and what are the best ways to reduce abortions, and and um, there there may be some space for common ground around those conversations. But I mean that's one of the issues where the gulf actually seems to be widening in in the last few years, even um, around that issue. I, I do, however, think that what what we saw in Bushnell's time particularly at the height of her influence, was how important it was for Christian feminists to work in tandem with, um, uh, quote-unquote, secular activists, and um, you know, many women's rights activists were religious uh, as well, but um, um, to, and to maintain conversation. And, you know, when I look at the, the questions around birth control, I don't know. Bushnell wasn't a, a necessarily the best conversation partner. She didn't like to compromise. And, and that worked well for her early in her career. And she was very intrepid and she she accomplished remarkable things. But by the 1920s and 1930s, I don't know that she would have been interested in seeking common ground. But uh, I still like to think that both Uh, groups could have benefited from taking seriously the concerns that each was raising. And I think that's that's true today as well. And I think that in in some cases, because of the existing gulf, uh, it's kind of safer just to stay in your own circles. Um, And um, there's a lot of distrust and disrespect, I think, that um, I would love to see. efforts to overcome that. In terms of which issues are most promising, to me, it seems like uh, sexual abuse, domestic violence should be no-brainers, should be issues around which Christian feminists and secular feminists or mainstream feminists can really come together. And I think think they have. And and, um, also anti-trafficking activism, um, to a certain extent, there there is... um, uh, common work being done there. But you also have, I think, um, Christian feminists kind of isolated from, uh, especially in the evangelical churches, from 
from the larger church, uh, even on issues like abuse and domestic violence, which are very much in the news right now with Paige Patterson and and the Southern Baptist Convention. But there's there's nothing new there. I mean, these conversations have been going on for a long time. And the truth is, many evangelical Christians have kind of written off issues like the abuse of women and and, um, domestic violence as kind of feminist issues and therefore suspect. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of victim blaming or doubting. And, and I think that's, and I think there's a lot of misinformation that's been spread in certain Christian circles about feminism and about, about feminists around these issues as well. And so I think there's that we need to open up those conversations, but they will be hard to have because there's a, a long legacy now of um, of mistrust and a misinformation in some of our Christian churches. That's a that's a great point. Uh, since you mentioned um, anti-trafficking advocacy and uh, and speaking against sexual abuse. Um, this might be a good time to talk about Bushnell's experiences uh, in India, which is the the part of the book where y- you were saying that your presentism kind of started to get you um, in researching the the birth control stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, the The India part of the book is when I kind of had to really sit down with myself and say, like, you know, it's, this is this is really interesting just because she sounds kind of colonialist you know there's a reason there's a reason for that um, so can we uh, can you talk a little bit about her experiences in India and how they contribute to uh, this connection between her feminist hermeneutic and her um, desire to be an advocate against uh, sexual violence and trafficking Mm-hmm. Sure. Well, first I'll start in Wisconsin very briefly, where her first kind of anti-trafficking crusade, uh, she she uh, organized in Wisconsin in the lumber camps. And so there she encountered uh, um, uh, the perpetrators were often foreign-born men, immigrants. Um, and so there you'll get a couple of mentions where, where she seems um, somewhat racist. Um, but even then, what was most shocking to her was not the fact that there could be foreign-born men abusing women, but that the respectable white Christian gentlemen and respectable virtuous women in these communities seem to condone this violence against women. And that's that's just a really important insight, and that will eventually... Um, turn her to the scriptures to figure out how these respectable Christian women can um, uh, and men can treat women with such cruelty and condone that. Um, but then she she goes and and does the same sort of campaign in British India, and that's when race really comes to play because I mean this is just the height of uh, Victorian colonialism, with this notion that. Uh, Anglo-American um, Christianity is the height of civilization. The whole rest of the world is is benighted, and sun and never sets, and all that exactly. stuff. Exactly, and and so there's this this 
great confidence in the superiority of Western Christianity, of Western culture. And when she then confronts, once again, white Christian men abusing women, and in this case, Indian women, she will have no more of this you know, uh, a superior Western Christian civilization. She is just disgusted with that. Now, um, it it was hard for me as a historian. On the one hand, I wanted to um, praise what I saw as really quite remarkable in her time and place, uh, because so many Christian women uh, actually use this kind of discourse of civilization to empower themselves. And to a certain extent, Bushnell benefited from that. She was the civilizing presence that could go out into the world. But then she turned it on its head by showing that you know, the the most, quote unquote, civilized were actually um, uh, the most horrific uh, sinners in um, um, in this equation. And, and so that then opens her up to a pretty uh, hard-hitting critique of not just Anglo-American civilization, but of a Christianity as well. And, um, and, and so, so I want to both praise her for being quite remarkable. This leads her to a pretty, pretty comprehensive critique of racism in all of its guises. And um, at the same time, however, she still is a white woman. And um, we, we don't hear many voices of um, the women that she is working with and for, of Indian women, of Chinese women, of women in Hong Kong, of women. She, she really travels the world. And so it's very much filtered through, um, through her perspective, even as she is quite open. Um, one of the, the ways that I see this is, on the one hand, um, for her, gender really does trump race in terms of the way she imagines her loyalties. So she talks about a global sisterhood of women. And she she has a, a kind of close imagined connection with women as women the, the world over, where she's quite suspicious of men. But that rhetoric of sisterhood at times can slip into a more maternalistic rhetoric of, of kind of mothering and daughters. And, and so she can never quite shed, fully shed, her, her kind of Western um, cultural framework. Yet um, what she does end up doing is, is quite remarkable. And it was her presence with women of color um, that actually led her to see the flaws in in her own culture. And and that really is what spawns her, her innovative theological work. So you mentioned that Bushnell's experiences with um, with women in other countries cause her to have an epiphany about patriarchal readings of the Bible. There's one particular event that uh, is is quite uh, striking and has, has really stayed with me that causes her to have this epiphany. Can you talk about uh, that event and the effect that it has on her? Yes, um, Bushnell had um, gone back to India. She had um, uh, uh, first kind of triumphantly wrapped up her India crusade, was able to 
uh, really take on the British Empire, the British government in terms of the way that they were um, um, treating the issue of prostitution in the British army camps. And she kind of did this victory lap. And then she returns to India not long after, only to discover that um, um, the problems continue. And it's at that point as well that she reads a story of um, that her friend Josephine Butler had commented on. It was in some of the, the British newspapers, and Butler herself was a, was a social purity activist uh, in Britain. And it was a story of the brutal rape of a Burmese woman at the hands of several um, uh, British soldiers. And... Um, a number of British soldiers had looked on and um, had done nothing to to help this woman. And Bushnell had observed all sorts of cruelties before this, but somehow this hit her in a way that she just couldn't come to terms with. Again, these are quote-unquote Christian men, representatives of the British Empire, uh, treating women with abhorrent cruelty. How could she make sense of this? And she just struggled and she opened her Bible and she's poured over the scriptures thinking that the answer has to be there. Um, it has to be, the problem is within Christianity itself because she had come across so many Christian men and women who were perpetrating or condoning violence against women. And that's when she came to this epiphany that the the patriarchy um, within the scriptures set men up to abuse women and left women defenseless against their abusers. And what she she talks about the patriarchal marriage relationship and and she just really takes it apart. Um, she says, you know, men would consider it abuse if they were essentially enslaved to their fellow men, why shouldn't women think the same? And besides, uh, you know, the model of power in the Bible isn't one of usurping power over over others. That wasn't Christ's model of power. He divested himself of power. Uh, and yet, we supposedly have this Christian view of marriage, which robs women of her power and um, it makes her subservient to men. That just seemed anti-biblical to her. And it's from that point on that she really invests herself in her biblical studies. And her her book, God's Word to Women, is really a, a survey of the scriptures to identify where masculine interpretation went wrong. Genesis is is um, Genesis and the Old Testament have important clues and New Testament writings on women as well. And um, so for her, patriarchy is, um, through her biblical investigations, she comes to conclude that patriarchy is actually a sign of man's rebellion against God. It is in no way ordained by God. You mentioned that God's word to women is lost to history uh, for a long time, partly because of its uh, its liminal political position, its adherence to a conservative hermeneutic. How was the book received when it was published? This is really surprising. It was actually very well received, um, particularly by conservative um, theologians. 
And to understand why that's the case, you really need to understand what was happening in American Protestantism in the 1920s when it um, um, was published. It was published in different stages at different times. But in the in the early 20s, it, it started to get reviewed in um, a number of, of journals. And at that time, the kind of fundamentalist modernist controversy was reaching its height. And so reviewers were were really sensitive to where she came down in terms of that debate, in terms of biblical authority. And for conservatives, she came down on the right side. Um, She was meticulous about uh, respecting the authority of the original languages of the scriptures. And she absolutely considered the scriptures God's word. And this was at a time when liberal Protestants were um, using different methods of interpretation and more flexible modes of historical critical method. And that allowed them to actually be less concerned about this or that grammatical structure or this or that precise interpretation. So in some ways, the, the more liberal Protestants who may have been more inclined to embrace some of her teachings um, weren't that convinced or concerned with her methods, whereas conservatives were quite impressed with her methods. So you'll get you know, the Moody, Moody Monthly um, writing a very positive review, and you'll, you'll get these comments from conservative theologians or biblical scholars saying, well, we might not agree with all of her interpretations, but we have to admit she does a pretty good job, and and it's at least as credible as as our, our working uh, interpretations, and I was really astounded by that um, that response, particularly among uh, evangelical or conservative Protestant audiences. That is that is really interesting, and and probably I I think you're right to say. Um, a, a reason that it doesn't stick around canonically, because I think a lot of uh, a lot of people just don't know what to do with it occupying that kind of middle way position. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that you know another thing that's important to to point out in terms of the lack of reception uh, that the the book um, um, experienced was. I've already criticized her writing style, but um, to defend her just a little bit, you know, she, as a woman, she was not ordained. Some women by that time could be ordained. She had not taken that path. Um, Even though she was a a fairly accomplished biblical scholar, as a woman, she did not hold a position at a seminary. Um, So she really lacked the institutional support that would give her the platform to really promote her work and promote her ideas. She self-published her work. So again, she had a very small platform. And by the time she, it took her a long time to write this book, understandably so, it's, it's, it's quite an achievement. But by the time she did publish it, um, she was no longer closely connected with the Women's Christian Temperance Union. She didn't have that institutional network. And so she really wasn't able to um, promote her work. And, and much of that has to do with her gender. It's a, that's a real shame. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, so it's it's good that you've uh, you've done so much work for us so that we can uh, we can understand how how important she and her work uh, are. 
So at one point in the book, you say Christian feminists should read Bushnell because she points us to the need for, quote, a robustly Christian sexual ethic suited to the realities of the modern world. Uh, I know this is a huge question, <laughs> but uh, what does that robustly Christian sexual ethic look like, do you think? And how do we get there, if it's even possible to get there? Yeah. I think we have a lot of work to do before we get there and even before, possibly before we know really what it looks like. But I think that there's a, a good starting point that, that she can help us to see. Um, she was writing in the 19th century when um, p female purity was, was elevated as the most important Christian virtue, the most important virtue for women. And she saw firsthand what damage that did, how women who couldn't uphold that unrealistic standard of purity were um, suffered abuse and, um, and uh, all sorts of cruelty at the hands of men. And she really, really pushed back against that. And she said, it's not purity that we should concern ourselves with, but justice. And I think that's a good place to start. And along with that, um, to have a flexibility in terms of um, any certainties we might have to specifics. And I think that, uh, I think of, of the, the question of abortion in particular in the, in the early 20th century for Bushnell and some of her, her co-workers, where at that time, most Christians thought abortion was absolutely wrong, or, or sorry, um, divorce was absolutely wrong. And, and therefore, uh, women were forced to stay in abusive marriages. And what, what Bushnell and others said was, no, 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 um, the patriarchal marriage of her time, and you could argue of, of our time in some circles today, goes against God's will for women and men. Therefore, you can't hold women to these marriages that go against the will of God. Patriarchy is against the will of God. Therefore, these marriages are. And so to have some flexibility for understanding just how pervasive sin is in our relationships, in um, our understandings of sexuality, and to have perhaps more flexibility in how we work out a justice-based sexual ethic. Um, and it has to be filled with justice for others and I think grace um, for for all of us as we attempt to figure out what it means to live um, in relationships um, and to really strive for human flourishing in what really is a broken world. And I think for Christians to hold that brokenness in one hand, even as they strive for wholeness and grace in the other, is... Um, is somehow at the heart of of this project. I think that uh, is a great answer to a very difficult question. Uh, justice and grace, there are certainly worse uh, starting places than that. Yeah. So thank you so much for... Uh, for being willing to talk to us about this book. I know it's been several years uh, since you wrote it. Can you tell our listeners a little bit more about uh, what you're working on now? 
Sure. So I published this book three years ago. And at that time, having spent a lot of time with um, progressive Methodist women in the late 19th, early 20th century, Bushnell was a Methodist woman, I started to notice some interesting connections, parallels between those women and uh, Hillary Clinton, actually, who is uh, a progressive Methodist woman herself. Um a number of parallels when it came to women's rights, when it came to um, ideas of the common good, of civil rights. And I just thought that was really intriguing. And so I started to do a little digging and discovered um, so much more to Clinton's um, faith history than I had realized. And so I started writing that book. I'm still writing that book. Um, Things got... um, picked up really fast with that project as she declared for president and um, during the campaign. And so I was writing furiously and uh, then she lost and uh, I still am absolutely writing the book right now. It's called Journey of Faith, Hillary Clinton and the Religious Polarization of American Christianity, because I think that you really can't understand Hillary Clinton if you don't understand the story of American Christianity in the last uh, 60, 70 years. Sure, absolutely. Yes, and and really Hillary Clinton's life illuminates that history of American Christianity in pretty phenomenal ways. So I'm working on that book. However, given her loss, it um, will no longer be a presidential history. And I decided to give it a little time to breathe for the dust to settle. Right now, there are a lot of quick takes coming out uh, about Clinton and about the election. And uh, this has turned into kind of true history now. But it was actually during the campaign in the fall of 2016, where I kind of stumbled back again onto another project. And it actually was just the the days after the Access Hollywood tapes were released, if you recall. Um, Unfortunately, I do recall. (laughs) Yes. And, you know, I had been paying a lot of attention to Hillary Clinton during the campaign and keeping my eye on, on Trump and keeping my eye on evangelicals. And it was relevant to my story. But it was in the days after the Access Hollywood tapes, came out that it suddenly dawned on me, um, evangelicals, the majority of evangelicals were not going to break with Trump. And I had a sense for why that was. Uh, About 10 years earlier, I had started another research project uh, inspired by some of my students at Calvin College who were sharing some materials that they were reading in dorm Bible studies with me. Um, one of the most popular books at that time was John Eldridge's Wild at Heart. Oh, man. Yes. And so I, I thought, how interesting as, a, as an American historian, I, um, I thought it was, it was just puzzling that this kind of muscular Christianity from the early 20th century was making a return. And I mean, even the the heroes that Eldridge and it turns out there was a whole literature of, of this of this sort popular in the early 2000s and the late 1990s. Um, you know, Teddy Roosevelt was a hero, this kind of white, uh, aggressive, violent, imperialistic masculinity. Um, and, and so I started researching that um, while I was finishing this book, while I was doing the Clinton project just uh, as, as, a, as, a, as a side project. Um, but then I, I set it aside for lack of time and, and for two reasons. Um, one, it was really depressing 
to read this literature coming out of the Christian church. And two, I wasn't entirely certain how mainstream it was. You know, I wasn't sure. Am I shining a light on kind of the dark corners of American evangelicalism, um, the extremes? What I realized uh, in the fall of 2016 is this this is, is pretty mainstream. And this kind of uh, uh, violent or aggressive is a better word, perhaps, aggressive masculinity had permeated evangelical culture for decades, actually. I had already traced it. I had already traced it back to the uh, 1970s. And in fact, you can find roots of it in, in the Cold War, early Cold War era, 1950s and 60s. And I just needed to explore that. So that's the book I'm writing right now. It's on evangelical militarism um, and masculinity. And it looks at um, how this shapes evangelical views of foreign policy, how it shapes their views of domestic policy, and how it's connected to uh, issues of sexual abuse and violence within evangelical churches and families as well. And so that book I actually just signed, and that should be um, wrapped up in just a few months. That sounds fascinating. I would love to read that as soon as it is released. Thank you. Yes, it has been uh, an amazing book to write. It, I feel like it's writing itself. On the one hand, it's it's, it's um, difficult because there's new material sometimes hourly, <laughs> that I feel like I need to incorporate. I imagine, uh, I imagine that research process is incredibly yes. exhausting these days. But it's also cathartic. It's really, really a privilege as a historian to be able, and as a Christian, to be able to illuminate this, um, what I think is really a, a toxic thread um, that has distorted the gospel of Christ in American Christianity. Well, thanks for telling us about both of those projects. Uh, we like to let our guests have the last word here on Christian Humanist Profiles. So is there anything else you would like to say about the Bushnell book that I haven't asked you about or that we haven't covered? I would just want to leave our listeners with a, a very quick summary of Bushnell's rewriting of Genesis. And that's where she um, goes to the Garden of Eden, and we have Adam and Eve, and they eat of the fruit. And um, right, this is um, the fall, but she says, actually, it's not quite the fall. The actual fall happens in the way that they respond to God. Adam responds saying, the woman you put here with me made me sin, made me eat. So essentially, he blames God. And she said, that is humanity's fall into sin. The woman rightly blames the serpent. And so she claims that in that moment, Eve didn't sin. Her tragic mistake was in later following Adam out of Eden and turning away from her God um, to her husband. And so what she does there is so profound. She upends notions of sin and submission for men and women. Male sin is dominating women and rebelling against God, and woman's sin is in submitting to men instead of to her God. And that is just um, such a powerful revisioning 
of um, the creation story. And it really structures the rest of her book. And I just love to to um, think the question, what if, what if this is true? What if this is the heart of Christianity? Thank you so much. I think that's a wonderful place for us to end. I really appreciate uh, your time and your agreeing to uh, discuss the book with me today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much.